Okay, and today we are going to talk about uh, Ronald Reagan and the age of Ronald Reagan. Now, at this point, we're, uh, we're almost into uh, contemporary history. Uh, actually, we're almost out of history. Uh, so I should note that uh, uh, my opinions, you know, the, opi- the opinions expressed in this lecture uh, may not hold up historically in 50 years. Uh, 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 your grandchildren uh, or great-grandchildren may hear a very, very different lecture about Ronald Reagan. But this is what we have for now. Now, Ronald Reagan's political opponents made a career uh, out of lampooning his intellectual ability and his work habits. Uh, Much like Dwight Eisenhower, and just as unfairly, I would think, uh, 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 they lampooned them both as uh, genial, befuddled uh, bumblers, uh, barely in touch with reality, uh, drifting about in a confused fog. Uh, Eisenhower uh, on the golf course, although ironically JFK, uh, who was a media darling, loved golf a lot more even than Eisenhower did, and Reagan chopping wood and riding horses uh, at his uh, Santa Barbara ranch. Uh, And uh, you weren't around during the 1980s, I was. Uh, Johnny Carson used to do some very, very, uh, uh, very, very funny imitations of, uh, of Ronald Reagan. But even those who hated Ronald Reagan admitted that Ronald Reagan could turn a phrase. He was very articulate. And he could articulate, in just a few words and sentences, the essence of what was bothering the American people and connect with the American people in ways that only FDR had been able to do before him. Reagan gave early proof of his talents in this regard during the presidential campaign of 1980 against Jimmy Carter when describing America under President Carter from 1977 to 1981, Reagan coined the phrase misery index, which was the sum of the unemployment and inflation rates in America that year. In 1980, the misery index was in the 20s, which is, of course, very high. By creating this number, for Americans, and also in asking them during the 1980 campaign very famously, are you better off today than you were four years ago, Reagan showed his genius for taking what the average American was thinking and expressing it in a crisp and succinct way that got to the heart of the issue. And Reagan moved millions of Americans. Ronald Reagan was not a major intellectual, but sometimes brilliant men and women suffer from what could be called paralysis by analysis. Jimmy Carter, who was a very smart man, may have been a good example of that. Now, Ronald Reagan had a few core beliefs, simple beliefs, simplistic beliefs in the eyes of his critics, lower taxes, less government, anti-communism, and Reagan held to them resolutely, used them to navigate the most complicated and treacherous waters in foreign and domestic policy during the 1980s. And, as I said earlier, it may be too early to tell whether Reagan was a success or a failure, whether the simple truths of Reagan's political life uh, 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 sustained or betrayed his presidency. The reading for today presents a mixed bag of reviews written by journalists, 
sometimes political partisans, sometimes political contemporaries, basically what you will get in the way of historical analysis of events that are uh, only about 20 or 25 years in the past uh, at this point. But even at this early historical vantage point, one thing is clear. Ronald Reagan used his simple truths to change America, to redirect its course, to change its assumptions, whether or not, to paraphrase his famous 1980 campaign questions, uh, a question, Americans were better off at the end of his presidency in 1989 than at the beginning in 1981, Reagan did not leave America or the world as he found it. And the impact of his eight years in office will be felt for a long time in a changed political landscape, a changed economic system, a changed set of national assumptions, and of course a changed world order. Love Reagan or loathe him, you can't ignore him. His place as the most important American president of the last third of the American century seems secure. And his impact on the 21st century will be significant uh, as well. For better or for worse, we will be living in a world that Ronald Reagan played a major role in creating. And so I think it's appropriate to start by examining the world that created Ronald Reagan to understand how a man who in 1965 was appearing on early morning local TV at the time about as low as you could sink, uh, dressed in a cowboy hat and riding a horse, hosting a dusty western series called Death Valley Days, how that man could become the leader of a conservative renaissance in America, many Americans called a veritable revolution, the Reagan Revolution. To understand this, and to understand this conservative resurgence that eventually created Reagan uh, as a politician, as a, as a president, uh, uh, for which he became the indispensable uh, man. We have to understand what that conservative movement was and where it came from. Now, in 1964, after conservative Republican Barry Goldwater, one of Reagan's heroes, had lost to liberal Democrat Lyndon Johnson in one of the biggest landslides in presidential election history. Goldwater car carried only six states. Anyone who predicted a conservative revolution in America would probably have been fitted for a straitjacket. The Great Society, the greatest and largest federal government program, spending program, since the New Deal was becoming a reality in 1964, uh, uh, as was the most important piece of civil rights legislation in a century, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that I talked about earlier, with more to follow. Big government in 1964 didn't seem to be much of a problem. Nor, to many Americans, did areas such as civil rights, at least outside the South, or even Vietnam. Relatively few Americans uh, uh, were, in 1964 at least, in Vietnam. Some, but not all that many. And certainly the thought of a two-bit country like North Vietnam imposing its will on the strongest nation in the world seemed ludicrous, as did the idea of mass anti-war protests. And... In 1964, as Johnson so handily beat the conservative uh, Goldwater, while there were folk singers, obviously like Bob Dylan, and a few uh, musicians like the Beatles, uh, not to 
mention a, scruff, a few scruffy beat generation poets still kicking around. Allen Ginsberg was still around. There were, as of 1964, no hippies, no mass drug use, and no counterculture. In many ways, then, in 1964, there seemed to be no need for conservatives or for a conservative political or intellectual movement in that year. And indeed, there were very few conservative intellectuals. Uh, William F. Buckley, who just died just uh, about a week ago, his National Review magazine uh, kept a couple of uh, uh, these, uh, uh, these conservative intellectuals employed. Uh, one of them was Whitaker Chambers, who wrote for the National Review magazine uh, uh, until his uh, death in the early 1960s. But liberals, nonetheless, dominated the world of ideas, the intellectual world, even to the point where one liberal intellectual, the uh, Columbia University literary critic Lionel Trilling, T-R-I-L-L-I-N-G, Trilling once remarked famously, and infamously actually, that there was only one intellectual tradition in America, and it was a liberal intellectual tradition. In other words, there was no conservative intellectual tradition. But of course, we know what happened after 1964 in America, in political life, in economic life, race relations, foreign policy, social and cultural life. And suddenly, after 1964, the conservative critique of American society didn't seem so far-fetched anymore, so divorced from the realities of what was going on in the country, and so devoid of answers for America's problems. Now, what were these conservative answers to America's problems? And who were these conservatives who suddenly became prominent in America after 1964? Well, I think you could divide them into two groups, uh, the social conservatives and the economic conservatives. Two groups that actually didn't have much use for each other, but both of which significantly admired Ronald Reagan and were ready to unite around him. Now, Perhaps the best way to distinguish social conservatives and economic conservatives is to identify the different part of liberalism that each was most concerned about. Social conservatives, who were exemplified by religious right figures uh, such as Jerry Falwell of the Moral Majority, who died last year, uh, uh, Pat Robertson, who's still around, uh, uh, and Ralph Reed of the Christian Coalition, social conservatives focused on the what they considered to be the cultural degeneration of the United States in the 1960s and beyond, what we've already talked about as the counterculture. And it's, at least in the view of the social conservatives, conservatives are overly permissive and morally relativistic values. For social conservatives, American, America had taken a wrong turn in the 1960s and then replicated the error by, by transmitting liberal, morally relativist values, or in their, in their view, morally bankrupt values, uh, to the American people as a whole in the 1970s. Uh, the whole idea of culture uh, started, cultural change starting by a few filtering down into the general population. That's what's going on here. Now, two specific issues were, for the social conservatives, emblematic of this uh, retreat from traditional morality uh, uh, towards liberal secularism. The first was the issue of school prayer, uh, uh, which was struck down by the Supreme Court 
the liberal Earl Warren Supreme Court, led Earl Warren-led Supreme Court, uh, uh, in the 1962 Engel versus Vitale decision, that's E-N-G-E-L, uh, V-I-T-A-L-E, not Dick Vitale, Vitale, uh, another kind of Vitale. Uh, now, social conservatives argued uh, 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 that the founding fathers actually believed in religion and believed that there should be religion in American life, not just a state religion. Uh, for example, uh, uh, England had the Church of England, and that was sort of the state religion. And social conservatives argued that that's what the founding fathers were worried about, not a religion, but just having an official uh, religion. And for the next three decades after the Engel decision, uh, uh, indeed they're still doing so, they try to overturn it and try to pass a constitutional amendment to overturn that decision. And the second issue is, of course, the very contentious issue of abortion, uh, which galvanized the social conservative movement when the Supreme Court's famous 1973 Roe v. Wade decision uh, effectively made abortion legal nationwide in a decision notable for its citation of a generalized right to privacy that was not found specifically in the language of the Constitution. Now, Roe v. Wade was probably the single most important event in the social conservative movement, creating an emblematic, symbolic issue that had resonance even beyond religious faith, one that united social conservatives, those uh, who are still... Uh, uh, working to either overturn Roe v. Wade in the courts or through a constitutional amendment. Abortion then gave social conservatives a strong focus and a symbolic rallying point for their battle uh, against uh, the cultural relativism of secular liberalism. Now the other branch of the conservative movement, what I call the economic conservatives, focused on a different sin, if you will, of modern liberalism, that of big government and bureaucratic overregulation and high taxes. The ranks of these free market economic conservatives included a number of intellectuals, ex-liberals, who were known as neoconservatives, uh, as well as economists and political scientists at major universities. So Lionel Trilling uh, was wrong about the existence of conservative uh, intellectuals. These neoconservatives were a rising class of politicians, uh, uh, especially uh, uh, strong in uh, uh, not only in, in Eastern intellectual circles, but at least with influence in the South and the West. Uh, 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 Newt Gingrich would be a good example of someone who was influenced by neoconservatism uh, 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 in, the, uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s. Now, these economic conservatives believed that the United States economy had become uh, shackled during the 1960s specifically, but even going back to the New Deal and FDR, by a federal regulatory and tax structure which was hostile to business, which inhibited growth, which was overly redistributionist in that it took money from those who created wealth and gave it to those who did not, and which stifled the kind of individual initiative uh, that economic conservatives argued uh, had made America an innovative world leader in the past, uh, the leader that it had ceased to be in the eyes of the economic conservatives. 
economic conservatives hammered away at what was basically a series of truisms, almost cliches, which they felt the nation, in its over-reliance on the federal government, had forgotten the idea that America was a capitalist nation, the idea that America was a competitive nation, the idea that America was an individualist nation, the idea that America was a self-reliant nation, and the idea that America was a nation in which the people themselves, and not government, made the essential economic decisions for themselves, and, just as importantly, accepted the consequences of those decisions. In the view of the economic conservatives, it was the government's job and the federal government's job to allow this process to take place, essentially by getting out of the way. Economic conservatives accordingly believed in less government regulation of business, less spending on social services, less taxes, less federal bureaucracy, more local power. Uh, remember, this is why someone like Barry Goldwater would oppose the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You know, local, local control. And also, economic conservatives although this sometimes contradicted everything uh, I just said, uh, also wanted a balanced budget. One thing that economic conservatives did not believe in, however, or believed only lukewarmly in, was social, conservative, is social conservatism, you know, the other branch of what I just talked about, uh, and social conservatives' aims. Many economic conservatives extended their libertarian and free market beliefs into the social and cultural sphere, adopting a judgment, a non-judgmental, live-and-let-live attitude that wasn't all that far away from those of liberals. So these two major components of the resurgent conservative movement of the late 1960s and 1970s, social conservatives and economic conservatives, were potentially enemies but they were able to work together during the 1970s and 1980s in a common cause, or actually a number of common causes. One, anti-communism, that always tied these two factions together, the social conservatives and the economic conservatives both hated communism. Uh, and it's not coincidental, I think, that social and economic conservatives went out of each other's throat in the Republican Party, or throats in the Republican Party, after the Cold War uh, ended, and still are at each other's throats, as John McCain is finding out to his dismay. Second goal that united social and economic conservatives, uh, victory uh, 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 over uh, uh, liberalism generally and the Democratic Party uh, uh, specifically through the vehicle of the uh, Republican Party. And third, the thing that united them, most importantly, was the career of a most improbable political leader, a B-level Hollywood actor with no electoral, uh, elective experience whatsoever before 1967, who was, by the mid-1970s, pushing retirement age, a man named Ronald Reagan. Now, it's fair to say that Ronald Reagan, who was loved by conservatives, loved by economic conservatives by his, uh, for his espousal of free markets and getting the government off the back of the people, as he would say, loved by social conservatives for his advocacy of traditional values, uh, although his presidency would be uh, more, during his presidency, I think Reagan was more of a talker than a doer in terms of uh, traditional values. And both 
economic and social conservatives who loved Reagan for his anti-communism. I think it's fair to say that Ronald Reagan had one of the strangest careers in political history. Born in 1911 in rural Illinois, he was an easygoing and outgoing young man whose pleasant style masked a less than pleasant uh, childhood. His father was a near-do-well and an alcoholic. After college, Reagan became a radio broadcaster and sometimes sports announcer. He even did some Chicago Cub games before heading out west to Hollywood, uh, like so many handsome young men in the late 1930s, to seek his fortune as an actor. There, Reagan encountered mixed success. For every film like King's Row, uh, where he gave an acclaimed performance as an amputee, uh, the title of his first autobiography, Where's the Rest of Me, is his signature line from King's Row. Uh, For every King's Row, there were a larger number of films like Bedtime for Bonzo, uh, in which uh, he shared top billing with a chimpanzee. Now, Reagan attracted much more notoriety Uh, uh, during uh, his Hollywood days as the president of the Screen Actors Guild, the Actors Union, uh, in the late 1940s and 1950s. Reagan became a passionate anti-communist as president of the Screen Actors Guild after being exposed to what he considered to be the dirty tactics of communists in the film industry. Formerly a New Deal Democrat, FDR remained Reagan's oldest political hero, ironically. Reagan now swung to the right, testifying before the House Un-American Activities Committee on Communists uh, in Hollywood, uh, and also embracing free market economics. As Reagan's film career began to wind down in the 1950s, he began a new career as a spokesman for the General Electric Company, honing his speaking skills as he traveled the United States addressing uh, General Electric uh, executives and workers uh, on the uh, power uh, and the merits of the free enterprise system and the evils of government regulation. By 1964, Reagan was supporting Barry Goldwater for president. And that year, Reagan gave a celebrated campaign speech for Goldwater that most observers agreed was much better than anything Goldwater himself had produced. In Reagan circles, that's known as the speech. Because from there, it was just a short step for Reagan running for office himself, which he did in 1966 for governor of California, improbably defeating a Democratic liberal incumbent uh, who had been considered unbeatable by almost a million votes. Ronald Reagan, star of Bedtime for Bonzo, was now governor of California to the amazement of most Americans, and quite possibly himself as well. Now, Reagan spent two terms as governor of California, uh, from 1967 to 1974, a period more notable for his uh, budget-cutting rhetoric than budget-cutting reality. Reagan was never able to rein in spending in that state, as well as for Reagan's attempt to take the final step to the White House, He ran for the Republican nomination uh, for the presidency uh, unsuccessfully in 1968. He lost out uh, to Richard Nixon for the nomination. And after his term as governor ended, he lost narrowly and heartbreakingly to Gerald Ford in 1976 in what most observers considered would be his last chance. But in 1980, now a sentimental hero to both wings of the conservative movement, economic and social, 
he took advantage of stagflation at home and humiliation abroad to defeat Jimmy Carter and become America's 40th president. A national joke no longer, at least in some circles. Because if any of you have seen the film Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox, who's seen Back to the Future? Okay, most of you. So you may remember the uh, Michael F J. Fox character. Uh, he's back in the 1950s and, uh, you know, from the 1980s back to the 1950s. He tells someone that Ronald Reagan is now president. Who is the vice president? The man replies. Jerry Lewis. Who remembers Jerry? Who knows who Jerry Lewis is? Okay, uh, it's a long story who Jerry Lewis is, but uh, believe me, it's actually a very funny line if you knew who Jerry Lewis is. Well, as far as his political opponents in the Democratic Party were concerned, Ronald Reagan might as well have been Jerry Lewis. Because incidentally, if you go to my office on the bulletin board, there is a photograph of Jerry Lewis on my, uh, uh, on my, uh, uh, on my bulletin board. Uh, uh, Jerry Lewis as the nutty professor, one of the, uh, one of the greatest movies ever made. But I, won't, I, I digress. Reagan's critics in the Democratic Party ridiculed him and ridiculed his easygoing lifestyle in office. He never seemed to be working very hard. He took frequent vacations. They ridiculed his habit of telling stories, anecdotes, uh, many of which were not true, uh, in place of uh, uh, discussing problems analytically. Uh, uh, they even ridiculed Reagan's penchant for eating jelly beans. There was a big jar of jelly beans on his desk in the Oval Office. But in retrospect, Reagan's critics made a mistake when they underestimated Reagan. Reagan came into office in 1981 with a definite program to reverse America's decline, both domestically and internationally. One he had, bedtime, bedtime for Bonzo notwithstanding, he had some 35 years to refine and work on before he became president. And... Helped by luck, Reagan was a very lucky president, uh, as lucky as Carter was unlucky. Uh, the release of the Iranian hostages on the day Reagan was inaugurated in 1981 set the general tone in this regard. Reagan set out to implement his program in what became known as the Reagan Revolution. Now, in domestic affairs, uh, Reagan's program focused on the ailing economy. Uh, Faced with stagflation that neither Presidents Ford nor uh, uh, Carter uh, seemed to have been able to control, Reagan offered a new solution, a novel solution, standing the teachings of the economist John Maynard Keynes on their head. Now, you may remember that when we talked about uh, Roosevelt's Second New Deal during the Great Depression, uh, uh, the Second New Deal of Roosevelt tried to increase demand and eventually prices by stimulating consumer demand, putting money through social services, uh, through the Social Security program, uh, even through union recognition, higher salaries, higher wages, into the pockets, putting money into the pockets of the average American, hoping that they would spend that money, spending your way, so to speak, out of the Depression. It's sort of what we're trying to do now with the economic stimulus package, where uh, uh, we're all going to get tax rebates of 300 or 600 or even $1,200. Hopefully, we'll spend it. Now, this idea was based, Second New Deal, was based on Keynesian economics, which accepted large deficits as the byproducts of stimulating spending. Now, Reagan, in 1981, as he entered office, also wanted to uh, increase spending. 
But he wanted to do it in a different way. Instead of giving money to consumers and average Americans through income transfers, he argued, why not just cut taxes for businesses and individuals and stimulate production, stimulate investment, uh, stimulate jobs, do it that way? Well, this program, which was known as supply-side economics, became the linchpin of Ronald Reagan's economic program, a program of tax cuts which, when combined with spending reductions, uh, would accomplish the same kind of recovery that John Maynard Keynes and FDR envisioned, but without the ongoing presence of government. Because here, the recovery would be fueled not by government spending, but by private spending, by individual spending. People would have money and decide how to spend it themselves. Now, Although his opponents, uh, even Republican opponents, called you know, Reagan crazy, George Bush famously called supply-side economics voodoo economics, Reagan was sure supply-side economics would work. And he rammed a series of sharp personal and business tax cuts through Congress in 1981 and 1982 in the hopes of stimulating the economy. Personal income taxes during that time were reduced by some 25%. But in 1982, the economy still seemed unresponsive. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, that year, uh, America suffered its worst recession since 1938. As unemployment surged towards 11% in 1982, uh, that's a lot, uh, Reagan was in, under intense pressure to lower interest rates and just increase the money supply, giving up on controlling inflation just in the hope of creating some jobs. You know, just ending the unemployment part of stagflation, but also leaving the inflation part where it was. But Reagan stubbornly held to his principles, those simple adages his critics delighted in lampooning, and refused to lower interest rates, hoping his tax cuts would eventually get the economy to start growing again. And by the next year, 1983, the high inflation that had bedeviled three American presidents, Nixon, Ford, and Carter, and hung on like a bad fever for almost a decade, it finally broke and America entered a period of low inflationary growth that lasted until the end, or through the end, of the Reagan presidency. For the rest of the 1980s, uh, America's economy grew about 1.4% each year, not as impressive as the 3% a year that we saw between 1947 and 1973, but much better than the stagnant 0.6% yearly growth rate of the mid to late 1970s. And by the time Reagan left office in 1989, unemployment had been reduced to about 5%. So the tax cuts had worked. The economy was expanding again, and supply-side economics had produced a new morning in America, right? Well, not quite. See, the tax cuts were only one part of the supply-side economic program. Spending cuts were supposed to go along with them. And although... Reagan said he wanted these spending cuts, uh, and in fact did cut social service spending by some 20% during his administration. This was far outweighed by the massive increases in defense spending that Reagan obtained during his presidency. This 
increase in defense spending when combined with the tax cuts, uh, which robbed the federal government of large amounts of revenue, created by the end of the Reagan presidency a huge budget deficit. The deficit tripled during Reagan's presidency to about $300 billion. Now, this, of course, is a strange legacy for a self-described fiscal conservative to leave. But Reagan can take credit for getting the American economy moving again without significant inflation after years of stagnation, whether through supply-side economics or voodoo economics, something his immediate predecessors in office could, could not say that they were able to do. Now, the other element of Reagan's economic stimulation program involved, as he put it, getting the government off the backs of the American people. Or, more to the point, getting the government off the backs of American business. Reagan reduced big government during the 1980s, mainly by restricting the regulatory power of federal agencies. Uh, easing environmental regulations, for example, and uh, safety regulations, and deregulating certain areas, uh, certain industries, uh, uh, completely. Like his business tax cuts, Reagan's effort to shrink the federal bureaucracy and allow private enterprise the freedom to make investments, to take chances, so to speak, uh, in the hopes of creating jobs. You know, businessmen who uh, know they will keep much of what they make uh, and the government will leave them alone, Reagan reasoned, uh, uh, will be much more likely to build an extra plant, uh, to invest in a new untried product, to hire more workers. Uh, uh, this was Reagan's belief, and in terms of economic growth, he was right. But once again, there was a price. Reagan's business-oriented policies during the 1980s made much more money for rich Americans than poor ones. And by the end of his presidency, there was a greater income gap between rich and poor Americans than there had been since the end of World War II in 1945. America's underclass, its black underclass, was left behind, almost abandoned during the Reagan years, victims of his social spending, service spending cuts, uh, uh, and also uh, his, uh, 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 his uh, 1988 uh, 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 Family Support Act, uh, where federal and state welfare regulations were reformed and eventually eliminated. Uh, uh, it actually reached fruition in the 1990s, but Reagan got that started in 1988. And also uh, Reagan's lax enforcement or even hostility to affirmative action. Now, Reagan, like Barry Goldwater, was not a racist. He didn't hate black people. I, in fact, I doubt that this very serene man hated anyone. But he certainly was not a good president for African Americans. His policies, whether he specifically intended them to or not, uh, hurt them. And he made America during his presidency a less equal nation, uh, at least if you measure this economically. Reagan staked his entire economic policy on the idea that putting money into the pockets of American businessmen would eventually mean pockets, uh, money in the pockets of the average American. In contrast to, for example, FDR, who put, during his second New Deal, put money directly in the pockets of those average Americans. But to deride this policy and to criticize this policy, as Reagan's critics uh, did, as trickle-down economics that benefited only the rich begs the question. Because 
income for middle-class Americans went up during the Reagan years, as did the average American's income. But rich Americans' income went up even more. And so, as is so often the case when evaluating aspects of American history, it all comes down to your perspective. Is the glass half empty or half full? And how do you define equality anyway? Reagan's legacy is an America where the rich got richer, as did the average American, although the latter did not get as rich. And what that says about Reagan and what that says about American equality you have to judge for yourselves. Now, Reagan left a strong but controversial legacy in the area of foreign policy as well. Reagan, like Jimmy Carter before him, was a foreign policy idealist, but of a very different sort. If Carter dreamed of a world without human rights violations, one that he did not get, as we saw in the last lecture, Reagan had an even more far-fetched one and dream especially in the context of the early 1980s. Reagan dreamed of a world without communism, and specifically, a world without the Soviet Union, which was, in 1981, as he took office, either the most powerful nation in the world or a close runner-up. Now, Reagan made no secret of his desires in this regard. He did not want to contain communism, to roll it back, uh, 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 to prevent it from expanding, as his predecessors did. He wanted to roll it back and eventually destroy it, to transcend it, as Reagan put it. When Reagan called the Soviet Union, in his famous phrase, an evil empire, many thought that he was just engaging in rhetorical hyperbole in a global form of trash-talking. But Reagan meant it, literally. For Reagan, Marxism was the ultimate source of evil in the world. It defiled everything it touched. Religion, the family, personal initiative, human dignity, the democratic political process, freedom, human progress itself. Reagan was convinced, in an ironic obverse to what Marx had famously said about capitalism, that communism was destined to fail and destined to the end to end up in the dustbin of history. And he, Ronald Reagan, wanted to be the instrument of that historical process. Remarkably, he largely succeeded. How did he do so? And more to the point, why did it happen? How much did Ronald Reagan have to do with the fall of the Soviet Union and the American victory in the Cold War? Well, as I said earlier, it's still probably too early to come to any hard and fast conclusions about this. I think the answer for now is he did more than his critics give him credit for, but less than various aging and nostalgic members of his administration think he did. In many ways, the implosion of the Soviet Union shortly after the end of the Reagan presidency was a textbook example of the containment doctrine as it had been articulated 40 years earlier uh, by George Kennan, working to perfection. All the elements were there. Steady pressure by the United States, the exhaustion of Soviet internal resources, and a collapse from within at the hands of a restive population. The Soviet Union, by 1989, had clearly overextended itself, and Ronald Reagan certainly had something to do with this. 
In the 1980s, Reagan gave aid and comfort, not just to anti-communist regimes that were in power, but also to anti-communist regimes that were opposition groups and seeking to gain power and topple, sometimes, Soviet-sponsored regimes, sometimes through guerrilla warfare. What usually had been a communist tactic, remember, of course, Vietnam is an example of communist-sponsored guerrillas. In this way, as he did with his often articulated uh, belief that Marxism was destined for the dustbin of history, Reagan again used the rhetoric and the tactics of communism against it, turning it on its head. Afghanistan, where Reagan aided uh, guerrillas resisting Soviet uh, invaders, is one example of this, and one that has obviously come back somewhat to haunt us. Uh, Nicaragua in which Reagan sponsored the rebel Contra forces in their guerrilla war uh, to overturn the Soviet-backed Sandinista regime, is another example. Reagan even risked his presidency for the Contras of Nicaragua, funneling money to them uh, uh, in violation of a congressional law with the proceeds of arms sales to, of all countries, Iran, in what became what was known as the Iran-Contra scandal which began in 1986 and didn't finally resolve itself until the early 1990s after the Reagan presidency ended, a scandal Reagan narrowly escaped being caught up in by pleading ignorance of what his subordinates were doing. And, of course, there was Reagan's famous brainchild, the SDI anti-missile defense system, nicknamed Star Wars, which he announced to great fanfare and also great domestic criticism in 1984. Now, Star Wars was outrageously expensive. It cost $26 billion just for its first stage. But Reagan must have known what it would do to the Soviet economy to try to match it. And even though, in the end, uh, uh, although uh, 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 Soviet uh, former Premier Gorbachev denies this, Star Wars may have been the straw that broke the back of the Soviet economy. Gorbachev, despite all his protests that it wasn't Star Wars, must have known this too because he tried desperately in every arms reduction summit meeting that he had with Ronald Reagan to try to get him to drop the Star Wars program, only to meet with Reagan's amiable but stubborn denial each time. So the pressure put on the Soviet economy and Soviet political system by Ronald Reagan's massive defense buildup during the 1980s played a major role in the Soviet Union's collapse. But did it play the major role? Would the Soviet Union have collapsed anyway? Well, many observers, and not all of them critics of Ronald Reagan, say that it would have. It would have collapsed anyway. The contradictions of a Soviet system that was relentlessly expansionist and thus forced to spend a huge percentage of its gross national product on the military, not to mention subjugate millions of people in other countries, these people say, uh, finally caught up to it in the 1980s and would have caught up to it Star Wars or no Star Wars, Ronald Reagan or no Ronald Reagan. And what may really have been the straw that broke the back uh, of the Soviet Union, these observers argue, was not Star Wars or Ronald Reagan, but the impact of a globalizing economy and a globalizing media, which mushroomed during the 1980s. Technology brought the world to the doorstep of even the most isolated and remote countries. CNN went into Moscow by the late 1980s. 
And once people in the Soviet Union and behind the Iron Curtain generally saw what they were missing, saw what America had, saw what the West had, the cars, the houses, the clothes, the entertainment, they wanted them too. And Marxism was doomed. This is why the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, with the USSR itself soon to follow. So it may not have been Ronald Reagan who ended the Cold War, but McDonald's, Bill Gates, and Ted Turner. This then is another of the is the glass half empty or half full questions that seem to abound in Ronald Reagan's presidency. And once again, the answer may depend on one's personal taste and one's politics. We are, after all, talking about events that took place only a couple of decades ago. But I think what we can agree about is whether Ronald Reagan had a lot or a little to do with it. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War may be the most significant events, uh, at least of my lifetime. And uh, assuming that you were, well, you're probably, most of you are not. Who was, who was born before 1991? Okay, all of you. That's right, all of you. Who was born before 1989? Virtually all of you. Okay, so I can say then that the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and the, uh, uh, and, and the uh, end of the Cold War, I think, uh, the most significant events uh, of your lifetime, uh, even including 9-11 and the Iraqi War. Uh, 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 so uh, I'll, 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 stake, I'll, I'll, I'll stake my historical reputation on that prediction. Uh, and it happened to a large extent, on Ronald Reagan's watch. Now, this, of course, brings us to the post-Cold uh, War and post-Ronald uh, Reagan world. Uh, uh, we are basically now at the end of history and at the beginning of current events. And uh, especially when you do contemporary history or 20th century history, as I do, uh, you have to be very careful about where you, where you stop talking about current events and start talking about history. Uh, I would note that, uh, and I've always tried to remember this as I do my own history where I, I, I write about the 1960s and 1970s, that uh, in British universities, uh, until the 1960s, uh, the modern British history course ended in 1914. It ended in 1914 up until the 1960s. In other words, it didn't even include World War I. So you have to be very careful about where, what, what you're calling history, uh, uh, which is why I pretty much end my narrative uh, in, in 1989. So what kind of world did Ronald Reagan uh, leave us? Uh, uh, you know, what did he bequeath us for the 1990s and for the 21st century? Well, Reagan, not surprisingly, gave us a world full of contradictions. A world without the threat of annihilation at the hands of the Soviet Union, at least for the moment, uh, but one in which a series of smaller nations nonetheless pose serious threats to the post-Soviet world order, and one in which, as we know, amorphous terrorist groups may pose the most serious threats of all. A world without Marxism with the exception of China and two or three other countries, but with nationalist and religious fundamentalist forces that may, in the future, pose just as great a threat to world security. At home, a nation coming off an unprecedented period of economic growth in the 1990s, and at least for the moment reasonably healthy economically. We've had many, many worse periods economically but one that uh, still has yet to address the problems of race uh, and of poverty in an organized way. 
a nation certainly much more confident about its worth and its power than when Ronald Reagan took office in 1981, but one increasingly at odds about its value, its culture, and even its identity. And, of course, a country that continues to answer or to seek to answer the basic questions, the eternal questions, about the nature of equality and the nature of freedom that every generation of Americans has struggled with and every American president tries to answer. Ronald Reagan, like all of our leaders, offered us his answers to these questions, but not the answers. We'll have to find those answers ourselves in a world he helped create, but that we must make. <laughs>